Section 18 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 7, Part 1. Hermann von Helmholtz. An Autobiographical Sketch. An address delivered on the occasion of his Jubilee, 1891. In the course of the past year, and most recently on the occasion of the celebration of my seventieth birthday and the subsequent festivities, I have been overloaded with honors, with marks of respect and of goodwill, in a way which could never have been expected. My own sovereign, His Majesty the German Emperor, has raised me to the highest rank in the civil service. The kings of Swedes and of Italy, my former sovereign, the Grand Duke of Baden, and the President of the French Republic, have conferred grand crosses on me. Many academies, not only of science, but also of the fine arts, faculties and learned societies spread over the whole world, from Tomsk to Melbourne, have sent me diplomas and richly illuminated addresses, expressing in elevated language their recognition of my scientific endeavors and their thanks for those endeavors in terms which I cannot read without a feeling of shame. My native town, Potsdam, has conferred its freedom on me. To all this must be added countless individuals, scientific and personal friends, pupils, and others personally unknown to me, who have sent their congratulations in telegrams and in letters. But this is not all. You desire to make my name the banner, as it were, of a magnificent institution, which, founded by lovers of science of all nations, is to encourage and promote scientific inquiry in all countries. Science and art are indeed at the present time the only remaining bond of peace between civilized nations. Their ever-increasing development is a common aim of all, is effected by the common work of all, and for the common good of all, a great and a sacred work. The founders even wished to devote their gift to the promotion of those branches of science which all my life I have pursued, and thus bring me, with my shortcomings, before future generations, almost as an exemplar of scientific investigation. This is the proudest honor which you could confer upon me insomuch as you thereby show that i possess your unqualified favorable opinion but it would border on presumption were i to accept it without a quiet expectation on my part that the judges of future centuries will not be influenced by considerations of personal favor my personal appearance even you have had represented in marble by a master of the first rank so that i shall appear to the present and to the future generations in a more ideal form. And another master of the etching needle has ensured that faithful portraits of me shall be distributed among my contemporaries. I cannot fail to remember that all you have done is an expression of the sincerest and warmest goodwill on your part, and that I am most deeply indebted to you for it. I must, however, be excused if the first effect of these abundant honors is rather surprising and confusing to me than intelligible. My own consciousness 
does not justify me in putting a measure of the value of what I have tried to do, which would leave such a balance in my favor as you have drawn. I know how simply everything I have done has been brought about, how scientific methods worked out by my predecessors have naturally led to certain results, and how frequently a fortunate circumstance or a lucky accident has helped me. But the chief difference is this. That which I have seen slowly growing from small beginnings, through months and years of toilsome and tentative work, all that suddenly starts before you like Pallas, fully equipped from the head of Jupiter. A feeling of surprise has entered into your estimate, but not into mine. At times, and perhaps even frequently, my own estimate may possibly have been unduly lowered by the fatigue of the work, and by vexation about all kinds of futile steps which I had taken. My colleagues, as well as the public at large, Estimate a scientific or artistic work according to the utility, the instruction, or the pleasure which it has afforded. An author is usually disposed to base his estimate on the labor it has cost him, and it is but seldom that both kinds of judgment agree. It can, on the other hand, be seen from incidental expressions of some of the most celebrated men, especially of artists, that they lay but small weight on productions which seem to us inimitable, compared with others which have been difficult, and yet which appear to readers and observers as much less successful. I need only mention Goethe, who once stated to Eckermann that he did not estimate his political work so highly as what he has done in the theory of colors. The same may have happened to me, though in a more modest degree, if I may accept your assurances and those of the authors of the addresses which have reached me. Permit me, therefore, to give you a short account of the manner in which I have been led to the special direction of my work. In my first seven years, I was a delicate boy, for long confined to my room, and often even to bed, but nevertheless I had strong inclination towards occupation and mental activity. My parents busied themselves a good deal with me, picture books and games, especially with wooden blocks filled up the rest of the time. Reading came pretty early, which, of course, greatly increased the range of my occupations, but a defect of my mental organization showed itself almost as early, in that I had a bad memory for disconnected things. The first indication of this I considered to be the difficulty I had in distinguishing between left and right. Afterwards, when at school I began with languages, I had greater difficulties than others in learning words, irregular grammatical forms, and peculiar terms of expression. History is then taught to us, I could scarcely master. To learn prose by heart was martyrdom. This defect has, of course, only increased, and is a vexation of my mature age. But when I possessed small, mnemotechnical methods, or merely such as are afforded by the meter and rhyme of poetry, learning by heart, and the retention of what I had learned, went on better. I easily remembered poems by great authors, but by no means so easily the somewhat artificial verses of authors of the second rank. I think that is probably due to the natural flow of thought in good poems, and I am inclined to think that, in this connection, is to be found an essential basis of aesthetic beauty. 
in the higher classes of the gymnasium i could repeat some books of the odyssey a considerable number of the odes of horace and large stores of german poetry in other directions i was just in the position of our older ancestors who were not able to write and hence expressed their laws and their history in verse so as to learn them by heart that which a man does easily he usually does willingly hence i was first of all a great admirer and lover of poetry this inclination was encouraged by my father who while he had a strict sense of duty was also of an enthusiastic disposition impassioned for poetry and particularly for the classic period of german literature he taught german in the upper classes of the gymnasium and read homer with us under his guidance we did alternately themes in german prose and metrical exercises poems as we call them but even if most of us remained indifferent poets we learned better in this way than in any other i know of how to express what we had to say in the most varied manner but the most perfect mnemotechnical help is a knowledge of the laws of phenomena this i first got to know in geometry from the time of my childish playing with wooden blocks the relations of special proportions to each other were well known to me from actual perception what sort of figures were produced when bodies of regular shape were laid against each other i knew well without much consideration when i began the scientific study of geometry all the facts which i had to learn were perfectly well known and familiar to me much to the astonishment of my teachers so far as i recollect they came out incidentally in the elementary school attached to the potsdam training college which i attended up to my eighth year strict scientific methods on the contrary were new to me and with their help i saw the difficulties disappear which had hindered me in other regions one thing was wanting in geometry it dealt exclusively with abstract forms of space and i delighted in complete reality as i became bigger and stronger i went about with my father and my schoolfellows a great deal in the neighborhood of my native town potsdam and i acquired a great love of nature this is perhaps the reason why the first fragments of physics which i learned in the gymnasium engrossed me much more closely than purely geometrical and algebraic studies here there was a copious and multifarious region with the mighty fullness of nature to be brought under the dominion of a mentally apprehended law and in fact that which first fascinated me was the intellectual mastery over nature which at first confronts us as so unfamiliar by the logical force of law but this of course soon led to the recognition that knowledge of natural processes was the magical key which places ascendancy over nature in the hands of its possessor in this order of ideas i felt myself at home i plunged then with great zeal and pleasure into the study of all the books on physics i found in my father's library they were very old-fashioned phlogiston still held sway and galvanism had not grown beyond the voltaic pile a young friend and myself tried with our small means all sorts of experiments about which we had read the action of acids on our mother's stores of linen we investigated thoroughly we had otherwise but little success most successful was perhaps the
the construction of optical instruments by means of spectacle glasses which were to be had in potsdam and a small botanical lens belonging to my father the limitation of our means had at the same time the value that i was compelled always to vary in all possible ways my plans for experiments until i got them in a form in which i could carry them out i must confess that many a time when the class was reading cicero or virgil both of which i found very tedious i was calculating under the desk the path of rays in a telescope and i discovered even at that time some optical theorems not ordinarily met with in textbooks but which i have afterwards found useful in the construction of the ophthalmoscope thus it happened that i entered upon the special line of study to which i have suddenly adhered and which in the conditions i have mentioned grew in an absorbing impulse amounting even to a passion this impulse to dominate the actual world by acquiring an understanding of it or what i think is only another expression for the same thing to discover the causal connection of phenomena has guided me through my whole life and the strength of this impulse is possibly the reason why i found no satisfaction in apparent solutions of problems so long as i felt there were still obscure points in them and now i was to go to the university physics was at that time looked upon as an art by which a living could not be made my parents were compelled to be very economical and my father explained to me that he knew of no other way of helping me to the study of physics than by taking up the study of medicine into the bargain i was by no means averse from the study of living nature and assented to this without much difficulty moreover the only influential person in our family had been a medical man the late surgeon-general Ursina, and this relationship was a recommendation in my favor among other applicants for admission to our army medical school the friedrich wilhelm institute which very materially helped the poorer students in passing through their medical course. In this study I came at once under the influence of a profound teacher, Johann Müller, he who had at the same time introduced E. Dubois-Raymond, E. Birke, C. Ludwig, and Verkau to the study of anatomy and physiology. As respects the critical questions about the nature of life, Müller still struggled between the older, essentially the metaphysical view and the naturalistic one which was then being developed but the conviction that nothing could replace the knowledge of facts forced itself upon him with increasing certainty and it may be that his influence over his students was the greater because he still so struggled yet people are ready at once to attack the deepest problems and thus i attacked the perplexing question of the nature of the vital force most physiologists had at that time adopted G. E. Stahl's way out of the difficulty that while it is the physical and chemical forces of the organs and substances of the living body which act on it, there is an indwelling vital soul or vital force which could bind and lose the activity of these forces. That after death, the free action of these forces produces decomposition while during life their action is continually being controlled by the soul of life. I had a misgiving that there was something against nature in this explanation, but it took me a good deal of trouble to state my misgiving in the form of a definite question. I found ultimately in the latter years of my career as a student that Stahl's theory ascribed to every living body 
the nature of perpetuum mobile. I was tolerably well acquainted with the controversies of this latter subject. In my school days I had heard it discussed by my father and our mathematical teachers, and while still a pupil of the Friedrich Wilhelm Institute I had helped in the library, and in my spare moments had looked through the works of Daniel, Bernoulli, de Lambert, and other mathematicians of the last century. I thus came upon the question what relations must exist between the various kinds of natural forces for a perpetual motion to be possible? And the further one, do those relations actually exist? In my essay on the conservation of force, my aim was merely to give a critical investigation and arrangement of the facts for the benefit of physiologists. I should have been quite prepared if the experts had ultimately said, we know all that, what is this young doctor thinking about and considering himself called upon to explain it to all us so fully? But to my astonishment, the physical authorities with whom I came in contact took the matter quite differently. They were inclined to deny the correctness of the law, and in the eager contest in which they were engaged against Hegel's natural philosophy, were disposed to declare my essay to be a fantastical speculation. Jacobi, the mathematician who recognized the connection of my line of thought with that of the mathematicians of the last century, was the only one who took an interest in my attempt and protected me from being misconceived. On the other hand, I met with enthusiastic applause, and practical help from my younger friends, and especially from E. Dubois Raymond. These, then, soon brought over to my side the members of the most recently formed Physical Society of Berlin. About Joule's researches on the same subject I knew at that time but little, and nothing at all of those of Robert Mayer. Connected with this were a few smaller experimental researches on putrefaction and fermentation, in which I was able to furnish a proof in opposition to Liebig's contention that both were by no means purely chemical decompositions spontaneously occurring or brought about by the aid of the atmospheric oxygen that alcoholic fermentation more especially was bound up with the presence of yeast spores which are only formed by reproduction there was further my work on metabolism in muscular action which afterwards was connected with that on the development of heat in muscular action these being processes which were to be expected from the law of the conservation of force. These researches were sufficient to direct upon me the attention of Johann Müller, as well as of the Prussian Ministry of Instruction, and to lead to my being called to Berlin as Brucke's successor, and immediately thereupon to the University of Königsberg. The army medical authorities, with thankworthy liberality, very readily agreed to relieve me from the obligations to further military service, and thus made it possible for me to take up a scientific position. In Königsberg I had to lecture on general pathology and physiology. A university professor undergoes a very valuable training in being compelled to lecture every year, on the whole range of his science, in such a manner that he convinces and satisfies the intelligent among his hearers, the leading men of the next generation. This necessity yielded me, first of all, two valuable results, for in my preparing my course of lectures I hit directly on the possibility of the ophthalmoscope, 
and then on the plan of measuring the rate of propagation of excitation in the nerves. End of section 18.